0: Well, we are starting our new sermon series in Matthew's Gospel, which we are calling Jesus our King and Teacher. And that's because Matthew has this great focus on Jesus being the long promised, the awaited and anointed King. But as King, he's also the one who comes to teach God's people. And we'll see that that in the way Matthew structures his gospel, he structures it around five key blocks of teaching, because just as the Old Testament is founded on the five key parts of teaching in the so-called Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible. So Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, um, as the fulfilment of all of the Old Testament promises, um, comes and brings you know, five key blocks of teaching for us today, Jesus, our King and Teacher. And Mark and I and the leadership team think this is particularly significant for us as a church family because we're aware that we're in these ongoing um, restrictions that we're facing in social distancing. There are many things that we can't do. Church is not yet back to normal, and even though the new normal I'm sure will not be the same as the old normal, there are lots of areas where we're restricted. But even though there are many important elements of church and the Christian life where we're restricted, The essential elements of the Christian life, that is listening to Jesus as our King, our Saviour, and our Teacher and obeying him and putting his teaching into practice in our life as the life of discipleship, we can all do that and so we don't want to be treading water this autumn, we want to be focusing on listening to Jesus and obeying all that he commands as our King and Teacher. Now in that light you might be thinking well that all sounds one enough but what on earth does this long list of names in the so-called genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 have to do with that? I mean after all isn't this the bit of the Bible that we should kind of skip over as we wait for some action Jesus to do some miracles or at least listen to his teaching but what has a list of names got to do with any of this? Well it's interesting that whilst we might roll our eyes and struggle with a passage like this For the people when Matthew wrote this in mid to late AD 50, this would have been interesting for them because it deals with something we're very passionate about today, and that is identity. This is all about Jesus' identity, who he is, and what he's come to achieve. And so as we look at this, we're gonna have to grapple with it. It's a little bit like a puzzle to kind of work out. Um, But as we go through, we're gonna see two things about Jesus' identity and who he is. First of all, that in Jesus, God is fulfilling his promises. And secondly, that in Jesus, God is making a name for us. Let's look first of all, that in Jesus, God is fulfilling his promises. Matthew's opening verse packs everything in and doesn't waste a word. Verse one, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the genealogy he starts with, and it's actually a phrase, genealogy could mean origins or beginning. Um, It's the same word that is used for Genesis in the first book of the Bible, and it's the same phrase that comes up right at the beginning of the Bible. So there's a sense in which, as Matthew starts his gospel, he's saying, after the Old Testament, with the coming of Jesus Christ, there is a new beginning, a new Genesis, a new origins. Jesus brings in a new age. Well, then, who is Jesus who brings in this new beginning, this new age? Well, we're told that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that he is the direct um, son of David or Abraham. I mean, they lived, you know, a couple of thousand um, years or a few hundred years, in David's case, before Jesus. So, of course, he's not the direct son of. Now, when it uses that phrase son of, it means in the line of. Um, therefore, he's an ethnic descendant of these people. And it's actually the same phrase that occurs um, throughout the genealogy where we have the father of. Um, It doesn't always mean the direct father of. It often means that they're in the line. And Matthew is deliberately and very transparently selective about the list of the lineage and the names that he pulls up. He's not intending it to be exhaustive. He's rather taking edited highlights to make certain key points as he establishes Jesus' kind of family tree, but not showing it all exhaustively. So why then the focus on Jesus being the son of David and the son of Abraham? Why are these two people, David and Abraham, so significant? Well, first of all, Abraham. In Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3, God makes these great promises to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes an absolutely astonishing and foundational promise in scripture to Abraham that through Abraham and through his line, God is going to bless all the nations of the earth. Matthew picks this up actually as a theme, both obviously here at the beginning of his gospel, but also at the end in the great commission, where he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. In other words, the blessing that God wants to bestow on all people through Abraham and through his line focuses in on Jesus Christ, the one who is in the lineage of Abraham. He is the one that God is gonna bless all the peoples of the earth through. And of course, it's mind blowing to think that over 2000 years before Jesus, when this promise is made, and now we stand 2000 years after Jesus, and we can see how this promise has been fulfilled. I mean, just think of it. Christianity is the most numerous religion with over 2 billion adherents in the world. Christianity is the religion that impacts the most countries and is the most diverse religion. It has the widest spread. And so we stand here 4,000 years or so after the promises made to Abraham, seeing how they are fulfilled, that all the peoples of the earth are being blessed through Jesus Christ, Abraham's son. But not only does Jesus say that the Messiah is a son of Abraham, he also majors on him being the son of David. That is, he is God's great king. Verse 17 at the end of our passage. Also says, thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So as well as mentioning that Jesus is the son of David at the beginning of the passage, we get this focus on the number 14 at the end of the passage. Now, why the mention of the number 14? well people in the ancient world and particularly the jews were you know placed a lot of importance on numerology that is using numbers to illustrate important realities in the world and numbers like here 14 here is um, being used um, according to a principle that is known as gematria. Now it's a little bit complex, but what that basically means is that um, names or words can be assigned a numerical value, depending on what the order of those letters in the name are in the alphabet. So for example, if we were doing it you, know, with, um, you know, with the word apple, then A is one and P would get a number of where it is in the alphabet, and you add all those numbers up, and then you get the the, the overall number that tells you it's talking about an apple. Well, similarly here for David, in the Hebrew alphabet, D is Dalet, and V um, in David's name is Vav. And so D, V, and D is the three consonants in David's name come at the fourth place in the Hebrew alphabet, the sixth place in the alphabet, and then the fourth. So four plus six plus four equals 14. I hope you're sticking with me. It's a bit like trying to crack a code. In other words, 14 is a way of emphasising David. And so when Matthew draws out and focuses in on 14 generations three times, and emphasises that in verse 17, he's underlining the significance of David. He's saying that Jesus is the son of David. And you can see it in the structure of how his line has been brought about. Now, why is David so significant? Well, again, just as with Abraham, because of the promises that God made to David about what he would do through his line. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 to 13 says this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So putting this all together, Matthew is saying that in Jesus Christ, there's a new beginning. And what is this new beginning about? It's about blessing all the peoples of the earth through Jesus, God's great promised king. And that blessing for all the peoples of the earth gets focused in Um, on this person of Jesus Christ because he is great David's greater son. He is the great king that all of the royal lineage is looking forward to. This is who Jesus is. He's the long-promised king and he's the one who will bring all the blessing that God wants to bestow on the nations. And again, this theme of Jesus being the long-promised king is repeated at the end of Matthew's gospel in the Great Commission when Jesus says this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Kings have authority. Jesus is the great king of all of God's kingdoms, which is all of the kingdoms of the earth. And therefore, Jesus has all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations to bring the blessing of Abraham. You know, um, we live in an age when many people are used to the fact that in marketing, lots of claims are made. Um, But those claims, you know, aren't expected to really be true. I was sitting on an EasyJet um, flight um, a couple of years ago when I was bored and I was flicking through the the kind of in-flight duty-free and I ended up looking at some of the cosmetic products. I was just stunned by some of the claims on them. So one cosmetic product was called Purity Made Simple, three-in-one cleanser. Also in the same range, they were offering Hope in a Jar, Performance Moisturiser, and then my personal favourite, When Hope is Not Enough, Antioxidant Serum. And, you know, they're offering a package deal, which you could get purity and hope all for £39. And I thought, well, that's a bargain. Purity and hope for £39, if only it was that simple, right? Now, of course, with something like that, we know that they're not trying to really claim, you know, that that's true. It's just a bit of marketing ploy. But it's more serious, isn't it, when we have people who do renege on their promises. Uh, Maybe you've had that in your life, friends or family members who've made commitments but not followed through on it, and it can be acutely painful. It's a tragic feature of our culture at the moment that politicians seem to play fast and loose with the truth, whether reneging on international treaties, which is deeply concerning, or whether the politics in the US at the moment, where you've got both sides um, seeking to get elected and making, um, manipulating the truth and making false claims to try to do that do you sometimes wonder therefore can i trust god if everyone is playing fast and loose with the truth does god tell me the truth does his promise to bless all the nations through jesus christ does his promise that jesus is the long promised king does that actually come true is it true can i trust him you know a few years ago rebecca tragically had her engagement ring stolen a work from her locker and she was very upset about and i was very upset of course as well but I remember that when we realized that it had been stolen once we processed the kind of emotional pain of that, I kind of jetted upstairs and went to my filing cabinet and pulled out the insurance certificate and remembered from that and could see from that that we got the ring insured. And therefore, whilst we couldn't get the same ring back, we could certainly recoup a lot. There was kind of redemption, there was restoration. The certificate was the guarantee of the commitment of restoration. Well, in the same way, Matthew is saying Jesus Christ is the guarantee of God's promises, of his commitment to fulfil his promises, of his commitment to bless all the nations of the earth, of his commitment to send a great king who will make all things right, this king and this great teacher. Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of God's promises. And so when you doubt if God's gonna come through for you, when you doubt if God is telling you the truth, look at Jesus Christ, he's the certificate of authenticity. Well, that's our first point, that in Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling his promises. Second point, in Jesus Christ, God is making a name for us. It's that time of year when lots of people arrive in London, um, people are moving, some people move after university or after school and coming to London for jobs, some people moving within jobs. And one of the things that is attractive about London and why it draws so many people here is that London gives you the promise of being able to make a name for yourself you know it's a bit like the line from the song new york new york if i can make it there i can make it anywhere and you the longing to make a name for ourselves well similarly in jesus time there was a longing to make a name for yourself but whereas today we seek to do it through merit and through our own achievements maybe getting into a. Um, into a pop band or maybe getting something to go viral or through our career at work, make a name for ourselves. In Jesus' day, you made a name for yourself through your line. The genealogy, your your lineage, was the equivalent of the first century CV. It wasn't therefore by merit, it was more by who you associated with, who was in your family. Well, in that light, as we look at this lineage of Jesus, as we look at the equivalent of his CV, What is astonishing as we go through it with the eye to detail is who is included. Because in your CV, of course, you put all of your best achievements, but you don't put some of your your more shameful moments. And yet there are some very surprising inclusions in this lineage. First of all, all Jewish lineages were patriarchal. That is, the the line and the name of the line passed through the male heirs. And so you would never have in a Jewish lineage um, women but not so with Jesus. As we go through this line, for example, look at verse three, we see a number of prominent women. Verse three, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Three women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And it's just astonishing that in a society that wrongly had prioritized men over women, that actually when Jesus comes, he evens out the balance and he includes women in his line. And they are honored and given a name by being included in the royal line. It's not just women, but also Gentiles are included. So for example, amongst these women, Rahab was a Canaanite, that is a non-Jew. And Ruth was a Moabite, again, a non-Jew. And the Jews were so particular when they did their genealogies of maintaining ethnic purity. But here again, because the blessings of Abraham are for all nations, God is not ashamed to include people who are not ethnically Jewish in his line, because the promises are for all people. And so he includes Ruth and He includes Rahab and others too. So not just women, not just Gentiles, but also moral failures. Tamar and the story of Tamar is a particularly sordid tale she desperately wants a child that is you know hard of course for a woman but the way she goes about getting a child is not good at all she doesn't have a husband so she pretends one day to be a shrine prostitute within a Canaanite um, shrine and so Judah who is um, an idolater and going along to the um to the shrine ends up sleeping with her because she hides herself and he doesn't know these. he's um, not sleeping with just a normal shrine prostitute. And so she manipulates Judah to get herself pregnant. And then she confronts him so that he has to um, agree to father the, um, the baby and to bring her up in his line. And it's a pretty sordid tale of seduction, manipulation and idolatry. No one comes out of it well. But Tamar is the main protagonist in the piece, engineering things for her own ends rather than trusting God. And yet, here, she's included in the line. You know, you don't necessarily put your most sordid, um, you know, kind of moments in your family tree or family history. But God includes her here. And it's not just um, Tamar, but Judah, as I mentioned, he's included and he's an idolater. Rahab is a prostitute. Later on in verse 10, we have mention of Manasseh who is described as one of the worst kings in all of Israel's history. You can read a list of his sins in 2 Chronicles 33. But remarkably, despite all of the evil that Manasseh does, he repents and turns to God and cries out to God for salvation in 2 Chronicles 33 verses 12 to 13. And God mercifully and amazingly hears his prayer and does restore him to a degree. And the point that is being made is this. Um, God's great name, the name of his great king, is not just for those who society has wrongfully pushed aside women and the vulnerable and the marginalised. It's not just for all nations rather than merely being you know, kind of um, for those who are ethnically pure, as it were, under the Jewish view. But it's also for people who blow it and get it wrong. And for us who think that we have to make a name for ourselves by our own effort, our own merit, by getting everything right, that should be enormously reassuring. God does not come and say, get everything right and then I'll give you a name. He comes and says, even if you've blown it, I'm prepared to give you the name that is above every name. Because in Jesus Christ, God gives us, if we trust in him, the greatest name, the name that is above all. names the name of Jesus Christ you know in the first and second century if you were a Roman citizen then there was a phrase civis Romanus sum um, I am a citizen of Rome and just that phrase had such weight to it because it gave you the name of Rome the great name the dominant empire name of Rome And the idea was that Rome would deploy all of its considerable resources to protect its citizens. So you are honored as a Roman citizen very highly. The African theologian Tertullian wrote this in the second century. What shall I say of the Romans themselves who fortify their own empire with garrisons of their own legions? Nor can extend the might of their kingdom beyond these nations. But Christ's name is extending everywhere, believed everywhere, worshipped by all the above enumerated nations reigning everywhere adored everywhere conferred equally everywhere upon all no king with him finds greater favor no barbarian lesser joy no dignities or pedigrees enjoy distinctions of merit to all he is equal to all he is king do you know what Tertullian is saying he's saying that anyone can come to Jesus Christ and find in him a great name, a name of honor that will echo throughout the ages because Jesus Christ is the eternal honored king. Whether king or outcast, success or failure, woman or man, whatever ethnic background, to all people, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you a name. You might say that sounds wonderful, but how is that? possible? Well, again, there's a small detail um, that's really important that I want to draw out in verse six. Notice how David is referred to. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You know, it's one thing including outsiders in the family line. It's one thing um, including the details of other people kind of incidental maybe in the family line. But David is critical to this family line of Jesus. And here, by mentioning Uriah's wife, There's a clear reference here to David's sin with Bathsheba. And the reason that this is being mentioned is to show that actually even at David, the great king, even at his lowest point, God was still sovereignly working to establish the name of Jesus Christ and our blessings in him. David's lowest point is actually somehow crucial to God's plan. And in a similar way, Jesus' lowest point, not because of any sin he did, but because he went to the cross to take our sin on himself. His lowest point, when he was scorned and rejected, when even his heavenly father turned his back on him, that lowest point is crucial to God's plan, just as it was crucial with David. Or to put it another way, God worked through David's sin to bring salvation for the, for the whole earth. And God works through Jesus taking our sin to bring salvation for the whole earth. David's name was dragged through the mud and yet God worked through that to establish his line, the one in whom Jesus Christ would come. And Jesus' name was dragged through the mud as on the cross. He was treated as a common criminal. As on the cross he bore all of our sin and everyone scorned and mocked him so that through him God would be able to bless all the nations this is how Jesus gives us a name and this is how Jesus proves to us that we can trust God's promises his name is dragged through the mud his moment of the lowest point is actually the moment of great exaltation when God is establishing his plan and fulfilling his promises and this is why the Bible says that all of the promises of God are yes and amen that is yes indeed in Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who secures them and fulfills them by his life, his death, and his resurrection. As I close, right now things are really uncertain. I, I'm sure you're feeling that personally. Maybe you are someone who's just graduated school, and you're looking to go to university, and you're wondering what that's even going to look like, and you've just come through the emotional roller coaster that is A-level results, and now you're wondering how is university going to shape up, and you just feel very destabilised. Where do you put your trust? Maybe you're a person who's trying to get a job and you're just thinking, how on earth am I supposed to get a job in this market in the greatest economic downturn in living memory? And you're feeling incredibly uncertain. Where do you put your trust? Maybe you're a person who's lost people close to you or is worried about people close to you and you're finding the prospect of looking ahead to the autumn painful as you worry for family and friends and those you love. Maybe you're a person who's worried about where you know, money is going to come in, um, the economic uncertainty. Will you be able to make ends meet? Will you be able to get to Christmas? And then how are you going to cope with Christmas into the new year and all of the expenses associated with that? Where do you put your trust? I hope you can see that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. He is absolutely dependable. God's promises are absolutely sure and trustworthy. And that promise is to bless you and to give you in Jesus Christ the greatest name of all. So can I encourage you, look away from your circumstances, look to Jesus Christ, trust in him. He is God's great king, our teacher. He is the one who fulfills all the promises of God, and in him we have a great name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for... This genealogy, thank you for all that it teaches us about who Jesus is and what it means for us. Help us to trust in him, however uncertain we feel, and to realise that in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen, and we have a great name established for eternity. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.